You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. I've learned that you don't do it alone. You learn so many different things from so many different coaches. That's an elite learning environment. Failure is not a problem. How you deal with it is a problem. How to be resilient. How important it is to infuse joy in the process of learning. To be a good coach, you've got to give more than you take. What an interesting life it is to be a leader. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, and so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our families, our teams, and our colleagues better. As the podcast has grown, the great coaches we have interviewed have shared so much insight and wisdom that we decided to create episodes dedicated entirely to the ideas that have resonated with us the most. Today's episode explores the topic of turning points in the careers of great coaches, and we are joined for the discussion by Dr. David Turner. David is a senior lecturer in sports coaching at Anglia Ruskin University, Cambridge in the UK. He is a member of the Cambridge Centre for Sport and Exercise Scientists and has been a sports coach and an educator for around 40 years. His research interests are centred around expertise and learning in sports coaching and beyond. And he is particularly interested in the use of storytelling to derive and represent the wisdom of the world's great coaches. He has an ongoing project called Learning from Legendary Coaches, and we're going to dip into that today as we talk about Phil Jackson, John Wooden, Pat Summit, Bill Belichick and others. And just before we go to the discussion, if you enjoy what we do here on the podcast and would like to learn more, then head over to our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. There you will see loads of exclusive audio and video content that you can download and share with your own teams 
to bring a different perspective to the challenges that your team might be facing. We also have a newsletter that comes out each week that contains the best insights, ideas and wisdoms from the people that we have interviewed on the podcast. And now, please enjoy our discussion on Turning Points with Dr. David Turner. You're listening to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. Dr. David Turner, good morning and welcome to the Great Coaches podcast. Hi, Paul. Thanks very much for the welcome. David, I'm so looking forward to this conversation. We've been back and forth quite a bit talking about it. But before we get into it, could you start by just telling us where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far today? Sure. Okay. I'm sitting in a shared office in Cambridge in England. Uh, there's nobody else in the shared office. Uh, nobody seems to have got back in the, the habit of coming back in. Um, what have I been up to? Um, I've been preparing for the new academic year, uh, doing a little bit of uh, some podcasts apart from this one uh, and doing some uh, writing of research. Uh, that's about what I'm up to at the moment. David, you've got a fascinating background when it comes to learning about, analysing and understanding some of the world's great coaches. But before we get into that, could I ask, where did your fascination with learning from legendary coaches come from? Okay, Uh, probably need to go back a bit. I I kind of grew up uh, playing a variety of different sports and eventually ended up going into education as a PE teacher initially, physical education. Um, These days I'm working as a senior lecturer in sports coaching and physical education at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge. Um, But I've been working 38 years in education all around sport, um, from primary school level right up to supervising um, doctorates. Um, And alongside that, I've been um, coaching and fitness instructing in a variety of activities, settings um, for 40 years alongside the, the work in education. So When I progressed from further education, college into university, um, it was a bit of a big leap and and I had to get my head around a lot of theory and do a master's and do a doctorate, et cetera. And I wanted to help my students to bridge the gap between theory and practice. And I thought the best way of doing that was to use these powerful stories of these legendary coaches that could bring coaching alive uh, and, and give them a kind of practical Uh, hook to hang their coat on with the theory and and just help them a little bit Um, and I found those stories of those coaches um, powerful and insightful for myself anyway and I wanted to share those with the wider world so it it grew a little bit from there into kind of public um, public speaking events some written published articles alongside that uh, and now wonderfully um, podcasts so just these inspiring stories really that can help people to learn and that can motivate us uh, and give us a clue about this wonderful rich thing that's coaching you know what might work what 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 might not work how do other people operate some of the people that you've studied and written about are the all-time greats there's phil jackson pat summit vince lombardi john buchanan i know you've you've written about him and he works a little bit with us here on the podcast and there's many many others you've worked on so many great coaches would it be too hard to ask you what's been your favorite one? Oh, that's like asking what's your favorite album of all time right um they're all different uh, i'm not going to duck the question uh, i think phil jackson I, i've i've 
gone back to some of the Phil Jackson stuff to prepare for this podcast. And Phil Jackson's probably still my favorite coach. Just such an unusual coach in, in, in the approach that he took, but highly successful. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take the question somewhere else. I, one of the things that's interesting for me is that a lot of my students, my former students, have latched onto some of these coaches. So I'm going to name drop uh, Tom Baker, who's a high-performance basketball coach in this country uh, and a passionate educator, a former student of mine. He absolutely loves John Wooden. John Wooden is a guide in his life. He's what I would call a distance mentor. And that's largely as a result of the, my learning from legendary coaching stuff and he, him engaging with that. And I love the fact that um, people latch on to their favourites and use them as a guide to their life, if you like. Um, and that's a really nice um, side benefit of doing learning from legendary coaches. It's such a treasure trove of learning that you've gathered from studying all these coaches. But the focus of this discussion is on key influences and turning points, which you've also spent some time thinking about. And I guess my first question is, why is it important that we we look at these moments? Okay, well, um, what I usually do with learning from legendary coaches is I usually choose a coach, read about them and get immersed in everything that's ever been published or written or recorded about them for several months. I know when I'm doing a good job, when I wake up in the middle of the night and I think I am them or I've been dreaming I am them. So I'm, I'm trying to get uh, intimately involved in their story. So I'd usually end up with a two hour talk based on that and trying to package their story coherently and see what we can learn from it. That would be a big ask to jump into that here. So I think it's nice for us to think about some commonalities um, and turning points and key influences is a way in, a way in of opening the door, I think. I think the great thing about um, coaching is that all of the developmental stories of those 20 odd coaches that I've looked at are so different, um, that that's rich. But a commonality that I can put my finger on is that there seem to be key influences and significant turning points on those journeys that I can point to that help us to have a deeper understanding of those coaches. So sometimes they're obvious, sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they're deliberate, sometimes they're happenstance. But these key influences and turning points can helpfully, hopefully, give us some profound wisdom into who the coaches are and why they coach the way they do. So, so that's why they might be a good in for us. I mean, it's such a, a rich tapestry you talk about. So let's dive in. Okay. Key influences, change. What have you noticed in that area? What comes through to you in these stories? Um, I think it's a window. It's a window into trying to understand who and what these coaches are. So coaches are both the product and the manifestation of their experiences. Coaches coach as they are. Um, and sometimes they'll be very aware of those influences. But sometimes when I'm looking at coaches' stories, I'm thinking, ah, that's why they are. And I'm not sure they even know some of that. And obviously, there's a subjective element. I understand that. There always is with stories. But that doesn't take away the, the very similitude, the ring of truth that you get. And it doesn't take away the power of stories. Um, there's a danger in learning from legendary coaches because legends are sometimes built on myth. Uh, and if we get to it today, I'll talk about John Wooden and one of his aspects that's actually, a, I found out, really is a myth. He, he'd embroidered it a little bit. And we can talk about that. But going back to it, the, the power of these things is, is a window on understanding the coaches deeply. So, David, if we look through that window, what are some of the examples that you'd like to talk to us about today? 
Sure. So um, let's talk a little bit about Phil Jackson. Um, okay, so key influences. Um, strict Christian upbringing. Uh, so Jackson wasn't allowed to watch films, uh, watch TV, or go to any dancing events until he was a teenager. His parents were both ministers. So growing up, Jackson actually thought that he would become a minister as well. Um, so when we think about that as a background, later on, Jackson emphasizes very much the spiritual development of groups, not necessarily in a religious way. Um, and he almost seems to act or lead them as a minister might lead a diverse flock. So there's that interesting influence there coming from his, his background. Um, Jackson went to university and studied religion, philosophy and psychology. Um, uh, and he developed broader interests. He, he rejected his strict Christian upbringing, but he had broader interests such as Native American Indian culture and Zen Buddhism. Um, so what we end up with there is he literally uses tribal rituals to bring groups together. So he literally puts the incense around the changing room or has totems that the, that the players can relate to. Um, and he, he brings in unusual, unlikely interventions to his coaching, such as meditation, yoga, um, various ways to prepare his athletes for athletic performance. And overarching that, there's a strong spiritual dimension to his coaching approach. Again, not necessarily religious, but strongly spiritual. So as a specific example, um, Jackson was keen to stress to his players that they should honor and respect their opponents uh, since they help you to be the best you can be. And that relates to the warrior culture of the Lakota Sioux tribe um, that he was familiar with. Um, and it links to the Latin origin of the word competition, which is compitari which is uh, meaning to strive together for excellence in self-fulfillment. So uh, just to summarize that, you know, we've got this Christian influence to start with that, that gets him to be almost like a minister to a flock when he's coaching. And we've got this interest in Zen Buddhism and Native American Indian culture, which helps, helps him to use tools to build culture uh, within a group uh, and to develop the spirit of a group. So David, when we, Think about Phil Jackson. Many of us would have seen The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary that that he featured in, but he was often in the background influencing the group and he never seemed to be in the forefront. What have you learnt from this approach that Phil Jackson had? I think often we deal with individuals and Jackson was dealing with the development of the group. Um, the group was more important the group development was more important to jackson than than individuals he wanted more of an egalitarian approach in the group and i think that's going to come out uh, when we look at a turning point in a minute so so i won't go into that in too much depth we'll develop that one a little bit later um but i think what we can generally learn is our experiences can be very powerful in guiding what we do later on and again that might that might be conscious or subconscious um but the way Jackson leads a group spiritually, and he might not be at the front, but he's there as the cement of the culture that's, that's around that group. Um, so I think it's really interesting trying to become aware of, trying to become aware of what Jackson did and what his influences were. But in doing this, what I hope coaches will do is, is be more familiar with their own influences and bring those to the surface and try to understand them a bit more. I think Jackson had a lot of self-understanding 
I think there's a lot of emphasis on rightly on learning who your athletes are and what their needs are and being responsive to them. But we also need to learn who we are and where we're coming from in order to promote our authenticity and without which we can't have relationships with deep relationships with athletes. I think what's fascinating about Phil Jackson is he has this great success at Chicago and then he, he heads off to the Lakers where lightning strikes again, you know, and he has this, this same success with, with another team. And I think whenever you can find a coach that's been able to achieve that, there's usually something pretty special uh, happening in the background. I think the other thing that strikes me about Phil Jackson, particularly from a leadership point of view, was that he wasn't afraid to bring spirituality into the center of his approach. And he did it in a way that wasn't confrontational or even really required anything from anybody. He just placed it there and allowed the team to react to it. And I thought it was it was quite unusual, particularly in a sporting sense, but also as I said, just in a general leadership sense. Yeah, um, he, he had a lovely phrase, selflessness is the soul of teamwork. Um, you know, I, I think that's amazing. He was trying to get his players to be selfless and, and and he wasn't trying to force things on people. He was trying to enact change as coaches all are, but he was trying to get people to buy into that change themselves. Uh, and that's a very different thing. Uh, and he was trying to get a culture of selflessness. And he didn't want to change people by force, which is a lot, a lot of what happens at that level. Um, he wanted to change people by love. That, that's a big, big word to use. But um, love for your fellow player, um, concern that, that somebody else wasn't getting the light. I mean, the story with, um, with Michael Jordan, which is what I really want to visit, one of the turning points. In fact, I think I'm going to dive in now because we get we're touching upon it anyway. So I've called this turning point point share the ball so when when he took over as the Bulls head coach in 1989 um Jackson uh, Michael Jordan rather was the dominant superstar um he'd won the NBA uh, most valuable player award in 88 he was the NBA scoring champion in 88 and 89 but he never won a championship um and actually looking back in the records I think it's something like a quarter of a century that the highest scoring player hadn't been on a championship team which is an interesting pattern um so greatest athlete on the planet. He'd frequently kind of win games single-handedly almost. Um, and Jackson felt that he was doing a little bit too much on his own. So he wanted him to kind of surrender his own self-interest for the greater good of the group. If you like a mighty tree in the in the rainforest that moves its canopy so that the saplings can get a bit of light. Um, so Jackson implements the triangle offense. Wasn't his innovation, but it was a... a, a a strategy, a tactic that he adopted. Um, and he adopted it because the triangle offense um, isn't a series of set plays. It reacts to the, the what the opponents do. It brings in the whole group. Everybody's important in some way. It's not reliant on just one playmaker. Somebody called it the equal opportunity offense. Um, so it allowed um, Jordan to relate to his less talented individuals uh, and was able to kind of bring them into the play a bit more, give them more of a role. The whole idea of all this is to try and make the whole more than the sum of its parts, which is a magic thing in coaching. You know, if you can get to the point where the entity, the team, the project is bigger than the, than the, even the stars, then that's really important. 
that emphasizes unselfishness, which we've already alluded to, working in harmony and how each person within the group can be important within a system. So, so that was the whole idea. So what, what, what ends up happening? Jackson, uh, Jordan, sorry, is not quite so dominant. He passes the ball a bit more. He scores less points. They still let him go rampant in, in, in the fourth quarter every now and then to win a game. Um, but he shares the ball more. The rest of the players grow more. In one championship winning season, he ends up passing the ball to Steve Kerr, who takes the winning shot, who's a bench player, you know, who's a periphery player. Um, so the other players are allowed to grow. Um, it becomes more of a group. And when you get the whole group, then you've got, again, the spirit of the group grows. Um, and they're not relying on one other person. So I think that's a wonderful story. And, you know, there's the old argument, isn't there, with coaches? Uh, and, and it's been said to me, oh, well, ja Jackson, he only wins with great players. Well, uh, great players sometimes only win with Jackson because if we think about um, Michael Jordan, Kobe, Shaq, how many championship rings do you think they won without Jackson? One. Shaq got one at Miami. One. All right. But um, Jordan didn't. Kobe didn't. Um, so it's a really interesting one. And, and going back to it, it's worth uh, reiterating. Selflessness is the soul of teamwork was a lovely phrase that I think Jackson used. Well, David, we go from Phil Jackson back to someone you mentioned uh, a few minutes back. And that's, of course... John Wooden, who is by far the most mentioned coach by the people that we interview on the podcast. People from all sports talk about him too, not just uh, basketball coaches. And of course, in John's life, religion or spirituality plays a part as well. Religion does play a part here too. More, uh, more obviously, I guess, than Jackson because... Um wooden keeps his religious influence um he still doesn't push his religion on people which i think is important to say but it's a guiding light for him isn't it a framework for him um so starting with that and it's a perfect um, segue in so thanks for that we, we'll talk about his his creed which i know we talked about informally before anyway um so legendarily and i'll go into why legendarily in a minute wooden's father passed on an, a, a seven point creed to his son uh, simple rules to live your life by. Now, I said sometimes myth and legend grow up around these coaches. Wooden's father was meant to have written these. And Wooden's father was meant to have given them to Wooden when he graduated from school. But that's not true. Um, these were published in 1931 and adapted slightly. Uh, in By 1931, Wooden was already at university himself. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that, that we negate it. His father felt that these simple rules were important enough to copy them out and he and he adapted a couple of them slightly and he still wanted to give his son these rules as, as to help him uh, live his life and guide his life so we've got these very simple rules I'm sure people have heard of them I won't read them all out but be be true to yourself the one that people often talk about is um make each day your masterpiece I think it was even alluded to on, on an episode of Ted Lasso um so, you know, they're, they're quite well known. They're these, these guiding principles for him. Um, what do they reinforce? They reinforce the importance of traditional uh, values and principles in an age of change and upheaval. And if we want to think about John Wooden for a little while, he coached mostly in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. So 
what what have we got there? We've got the Korean War, we've got the uh, civil rights movement, the hippie movement, we've got the Vietnam War. So a lot of change that, that Wooden coaches through. Um, Wooden manages to keep a, a level um, success of leadership, consistent successful leadership in changing times by adhering to his creed. And apparently he carried around a piece of paper with him written on in his wallet um, while he coached all the time. So kind of embodying steady principled leadership in changing times. So if I embroider that with a little story, particular story, uh, it's the first practice of the season and John Wooden lines the players up for an inspection because he's got rules about no facial hair and he's got rules about the hair being two inches or less uh, in length. And there are practical reasons for that, by the way. He's not just being domineering. He believed that if you had facial hair and you touched your hair or, or you were taking your hair out of your eyes, you, your fingers would be slick and your passing wouldn't be as good. But the star player from the previous championship winning um, team turns up with mutton chops and, and long hair. Uh, and he says to Wooden, you know, look, um, it's my right. And, you know, it's important to, to stand up for your rights. And, uh, and you know, I don't want to cut my hair kind of thing. So Wooden agrees that rights are really important and standing up for them are important too. Uh, but he tells the player that he's got 15 minutes to correct the situation. Or in his words, we're going to really miss you. Um, and this is the star player. So, you know, there's an interesting thing there about um, what's more important to you, your, your guiding principles or, or the, the, the superstar player. Um, and how do you keep your life on a kind of track uh, through vastly changing times? I guess my concern a little bit about that is I think the most important quality of a coach is, is adaptation. But we have got to get some sort of steadiness or consistency with our coaching. And we've got to remember about John Wooden's context. He's coaching in an American university. The players are changing all the time. The players that are coming in are very different and from different areas of the country. So he needs to be some sort of anchor that's steady in the middle of that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As I said, I've interviewed at least half a dozen people who got to spend time with John Wooden. And there was one in particular, a gentleman called Al Skates, who... He won 10 NCAA titles. He's, uh, he won more than Wooden. He's one of the most winningest uh, coaches when in, the, uh, in the NCAA championship. He was a volleyball coach. And when John Wooden retired, he had an office next to Al Skates, you know, and he would come in every day and answer mail and, um, and engage with the people that wanted to come and see him. But, but Al spoke about him in a really 
reverent way and, and reflected on a lot of the conversations they'd had together. And just listening to Al, he, he reminded me of, of one of Wooden's uh, rules, which was, you know, don't stop practice to give feedback. You sort of teach in the moment. You give feedback in the moment as, as practice is going on. And it's definitely something that I have tried to bring more into my style at work. You know, I may have waited till after the event to write a little note or to give some feedback. But, you know, now I try to do it more in the moment and and make it live and, and connect it to the activities that are that are going on. But I'm curious, David, what are some of the things that you've learned or you've taken away from your study of perhaps the most famous coach of all time? Yeah, uh, he's a pedagogical god in terms of uh, sports coaching. I mean, he is a master educator. Um, he starts off teaching English before he, he teaches basketball. And I guess I've got to say that in, I believe in the sports coach as an educator. There was a book of that title a few years back. And, and you know, both, both, both are educating roles. And I do the same. I'm in the classroom and then I'm on the pitch. Um, they're not the same, but they're very similar. But John Wooden brings masterful teaching and learning to, to the coaching profession. Um, and I think that leads nicely into the second key influence, if I can do that. Um, so John, John Wooden's high school teacher in Indiana, he was in a kind of one school, uh, one room class uh, school in Midwest. His teacher sets the pupils the homework of writing an essay defining what success is. So this is in the 1920s. <clears throat> Intrigued, Wooden thinks deeply uh, and reflects deeply on the definition of success for decades after that. So when he himself goes into teaching and then coaching, um, he wants his pupils and his athletes to understand how to judge and promote success. So uh, he draws upon his father again. So a quote from his father, always try to be the very best you can. Learn from others, yes, but don't try to be better than they are. You have no control over that. Instead, try very hard to be the best you can be that you have control over. So he starts to develop from 1934 onwards, I think it was, his pyramid of success with the blocks indicating you know, how, how we achieve success and his famous uh, definition of success as well. Just read it for um, reminding people. Success is peace of mind that is the direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing you did your best to become the best you are capable of becoming. So Wooden emphasizes very much self-effort, achieving your best. He talks about his athletes and he says, you know, um, this athlete was better than that. But I enjoyed coaching this athlete because I felt they got closest to their potential. Um, so this idea about your own level of success is really interesting. And also the idea about the pyramid, about helping his athletes and his pupils to conceive of what success is, what it really is beyond the scoreboard. Um, I actually need to give a bit of credit, by the way. Learning from Legendary Coaches, originally inspired by a book by Gary Walton uh, called The Coaching Philosophies of the All-Time Greats, I think it was. And the main title was Beyond Winning. And there's a chapter on uh, Wooden in there. Um, you know, I guess it's this thing about success is not winning, but winning is the byproduct of success. Um, so Wooden's the ultimate process coach, isn't he? You know, he... The, these players get really excited. They're going to the greatest coach of all time uh, and they get recruited there and they're ready for the lesson. And the lesson is, how do you put your socks on? Well, you know, so that you don't get blisters. 
but that's part of the process um, and by such fine details are our championships won um the interesting thing with wooden is, is he wasn't successful i don't think for 14 years uh in terms of winning anything uh, so it took him a long time to to get it right um and i think he wasn't the saint he's painted out to be at the start uh, people said he used a lot of profanity at the start and things like that um so he did change a bit over time um but once he hit uh, his winning formula he was very difficult to stop um people said that his tactics weren't um very complex but you just couldn't stop it it was really done really well he never scouted the opposition or very rarely scouted the opposition and he didn't mention winning uh, his players say when he had an 80 percent win record at the university level um so an incredible coach um i used to think years ago when i read about him always a bit boring and he, but you know, i'm getting more like him because the older you go the more you go with your tried and tested methods and uh, and stick to your process things I think humility is is definitely a, a great word that, that uh, can be associated with John Wooden. But what's the lesson in Wooden that you think we should all be potentially reflecting on? When I think of Wooden, I don't think about the rules. I think about the creed and the principles that he worked by. You know, And the principles are really important. Um, principles are more adaptable. They can change a little bit with time. You need guiding principles to your coaching approach. And he had these clear guiding principles. Um, maybe he was a bit over the top on the rules, but I'll go back to the context again. You know, he's got new players coming in all the time. You need to have a fairly um, state set of rules uh, that they're going to adhere to. Um, Wooden just did things so well with his own team um, that he wasn't concerned with the opposition. Um so he he's the old story. It's a little bit like Vince Lombardi, isn't it? You know, we're not going to achieve perfection, but but we're going to get pretty near it. Um, we're going to try and get things to perfection. So, the, I mean, when I think about Wooden, I think about practice because he would, I think he would plan for an hour and a half for an hour's practice. Uh, and he had little cards for every practice he'd ever done over the 40 years with little notes on the back about what he'd do next time. So that meticulousness uh, and that had hit, Adherence to a guiding set of principles and a guiding process is what I take away from it. Yeah, oh, fascinating. David, if I could take you from John Wooden to another basketball coach with a with a very, very different style. And that's of course Pat Summit. Um Pat Summit's somebody I I've profiled recently. Um and I, I really came to Tend to love this coach. There's, there's some great stories in there. Pat came from such a tough background. Um, you know, she was working on the farm from a very early age. She had a very strict father. Um, he was six foot five. Um, he had a fearsome stare, which is where she got the, the summit stare from. Um, he regularly beat his children. And I'm not saying that in an offhand way. It was part culturally ingrained thing in Tennessee at that sort of time. They did it in schools. Um so, you know, it, she, he treated her like the boys. Um, even when she got older, uh, there was a party arranged for her 16th birthday uh, and she couldn't go to her own birthday party because her father needed the hay in before it rained. Um, he didn't hug her for 43 years. He hugged her when Tennessee won its third national championship. Um, when they won a championship the year afterwards, he said, somebody around here can coach. That was the first time he gave her a compliment. Uh, but then he said, but it might be one of your assistants. <laughs> so, so he wasn't... Uh, 
he wasn't rich with with giving away compliments but and this is an interesting thing to look at the wonderful italian word the chiaroscuro the play of light and dark with people there was no basket no girls basketball in in the catchment area of pat summit school so her father moved the whole family over the county line leaving behind a recently hand-built house access to basketball he encouraged her to set her sights high for instance on playing in the olympics in 1976 which was the first tournament for women at that level um this is this is a quote from pat summit's mother he thought she could do anything because she was tough and raised up with the boys um when she suffered an acl injury in 1974 um the doctor told her she wouldn't play again and her father was there and he said play she's going to the olympics and she recovered and she did now ACL reconstruction in that day is not what ACL reconstruction is in this day. And she became the co-captain of that team. Um, and they won a medal there as well. Um, so how does that manifest in her coaching? Well, she's she's kind of thrust into coaching. Um, she's thrust into coaching at a very tender age. She's about one year older than some of her players when she takes over because the head coach suddenly resigns. She said, I'd never coached a day in my life. I had no idea what was going to happen to this program. So what are her role models in coaching? She'd seen a couple of female coaches, but mostly the male ones. So what does she do? She adopts the stereotype of the, the shouting, screaming, tough coach, uh, because that's all she's got to work on. And she can't afford to, uh, to have her status demeaned because she's young. And so she's deliberately hard-headed, reluctant to be friendly, doesn't want her authority undermined, intentionally barking orders, um, intimidating and insecure. Um, so, you know, she runs players until they're sick and things like that. Um, she heard overheard a player saying, um, Pat's never satisfied with me. She makes she makes me feel like I can't do anything right. And Pat said over the years, she gradually tried to change that. Um, now, if I go back, her father was rock hard, right, with the upbringing. But all those things he did, like like moving the family over the county line, our belief in the person and, and an underlying love, not expressed, but there. So we end up with a coach. Pat Summit was hard, definitely, but she loved her players and she wanted to open up opportunities for her players and she did so well. Um, but similar to the Wooden story, um, she doesn't win anything uh, for 14 years. And that's because she's on a journey. She said, I was so busy being tough. I didn't understand the value of getting to know the players on a deeper level, their real strengths and vulnerabilities. So she needed to understand the players she was working with and how they responded to pressure. So there's a, there was a famous incident. She had a, a playmaker. Um, I think the name was Hatmaker. Uh, and she calls the group in for a timeout. It's a crucial point in the game towards the end. They have the huddle. She call, gives them the play that's going to get to the hands of Hatmaker to make the final shot. Off you go. Team has another huddle on the way out there. She thinks, what's going on? They do the play, goes to someone else who scores the winning basket. They come back over and they go, look, before you do, before you go to us, she didn't want to take the shot. We knew she didn't want to take the shot, so we played it to someone else. So she understood then in that moment that she had to understand her players better and how they, how they responded in, in difficult situations. So she came to this realisation that the, the job of a coach wasn't to be a sergeant major. It was about preparing people to make good independent decisions on their own. When she started out, she used the phrase that she was trying to get uh, athletes to think like Pat, act like Pat, a row of little patlings, you know, just doing what she said or what she wanted. So she became, over time, 
a more creative, resourceful coach, uh, didn't try to control everything. Uh, she realised you can have respect and authority, um, but still have a relationship with players. A particular team that was a catalyst for that was the 1997-98 team. Um, they were young and highly talented, but she realised they were all virtually all from broken homes. So she yelled less. Um, she became more supportive and had a relaxed, more closer relationship with the players. So there's a Pat Summit was renowned for one-to-one -one meetings, and, and she has a one-to-one -one meeting with a player. They look at all her stats, they look at her uh, physiological stuff, they look at her psychological profiling, which Summit used. Uh, and after this detailed meeting, Pat says to the player, "Right, is there anything else I can do for you?" And the Pat said, uh, and the player said, "Yeah, there is." And Pat said, "Well, what is it?" She said, "Well, I'd like a hug." And you can imagine the moment, and Pat goes, "Well." okay <laughs> but but there's that moment where she's bending and, and becoming what they need um so a couple of quotes to finish with that uh, with this team it seemed especially important to know more than just their personalities on the court i needed to know their characters off it the more the characters off it the more trust in my relationship with players the better teacher and coach i could be to them and this is where it ends up that team ended up winning a championship during the final pat summit calls them into a circle she said, I'd meditated all day on what kind of speech to give, how to prepare them to play. But now, looking straight into their eyes, I realised they didn't need a speech. They know all the answers for themselves. It was what you strive for as a teacher. My job was done. I think Pat's story is really quite amazing. She was such a big character and, and she was lost to us far too soon. But this turning point you talk about, I've heard it quite a few times and I've Heard it explained that a lot of coaches of that era who were in turn coached, taught or led by people that were influenced by the Second World War very much had this sergeant major approach. But the turning point for Pat is so similar for other coaches too. It comes back to this realisation that the best way to lead is through love and care and respect and an understanding a person beyond their ability to just provide a service or play a role and I think it's such a universal learning it's definitely uh, been a learning for me that I've taken away from from these uh, these interviews with so many of these great coaches yeah I think the care was always there I think it was like her father it was masked um, and, and she needed this group to change her to bring it out but it's really interesting what you said about war um, if you were John Wooden and you were coaching people who'd come back from the war in the 19, late 1940s or 50s, the interesting thing for me is those players probably would have wanted a military approach because they would have been more comfortable with it. They would have probably been very uncomfortable with a more caring approach. So some of this is about a developmental journey of change that, that you've seen in others and I've seen in Pat's Summit, for instance. But some of it is about also a fit with the cultural times uh, and being the yelling, screaming coach uh, has become more and more unacceptable as time has gone on. Uh, and certain coaches who can't change themselves become redundant uh, because of that, become a sideshow because, because they're no longer relevant to the cultural times too. Well, from Pat Summit, where should we go? Perhaps a coach that I don't know a lot about but would be really interested to learn more about, and that is uh, Bill Belichick. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, let's go into some key influences for Bill Belichick. Um, his family were um, descended from Croatian immigrants who settled in the harsh uh, US coal and steel making belt. Um, they were hard workers, they were poor, uh, they helped each other out and they, they took what opportunities came up as, as immigrant families often do. Belichick's father was a very smart coach, an exceptional teacher and the foremost scout in, in American football of his era. Uh, he was at Navy. His job was to scout the team they were about to play. Bill went on the road with him and learned a lot watching him at work. Um, the father had his son breaking down game footage, aged nine years old. Um, so very early on, Belichick was developing a coaching eye, particularly for what might be called spoiling, which Phil Jackson was great at as well, which is taking the other team away from the soul of what they want to do. Um, so he always planned to be a coach, Belichick. Uh, he wasn't a, a pro player. Uh, he went straight into coaching after graduation. He was an assistant and a specialist coach for four years at three different uh, M three different NFL clubs. Uh, so in 1975, he's a very lowly, poorly paid assistant at the Baltimore Colts. He's sleeping on the sofa and things like that. Um, so he's working his way up, proving his worth, like his immigrant uh, ancestors did. Uh, he then spends 12 years at the New York Giants as a defensive coach under uh, another legendary coach, Bill Parcells, who's hard as nails. Uh, he won two Super Bowl um, rings as a defensive coordinator. His defensive um, game plan uh, when they beat the Buffalo Bills is in the Football Hall of Fame. So we've got this hardworking prodigy with an excellent heritage and an excellent work experience. So I'm going to go into a turning point now. So he spent 16 years working his way up in the NFL and he becomes head coach. He gets the chance with Cleveland Browns in 1991. Uh, he has a 36 win, 44 loss record over five seasons with them. That's remarkable for a coach who's now got a, one of the best records of all time. So remarkably poor. He's got 67% win record now. Um, he did get some developmental momentum with that group. But in mid-1995, the franchise owner who was in financial jeopardy announced that they were going to move the whole franchise to Baltimore. Um, so they were in a financial mess and Belichick only learned about it in the papers. He wasn't even told about it. So despite assurances he was going to be continuing as the coach, he was sacked by phone after a 5-11 season. They were actually on 4-4, but they only won uh, one game from eight after that announcement was made. Uh, it, it kind of went down the drain, if you, if you like. Um, so what happened at, at Cleveland? This is, this is Bill Belichick's nadir, his low point. Um, he's now considered a GOAT, the greatest of all time kind of thing. So what happened was he found an organisation that didn't have an identity at Cleveland. Uh, the college and the pro scouts were looking at different criteria for spotting talent. So they weren't on the same page. Um, Belichick wasn't used to be in front of house. He played hardball with the media and he shut down their access um, and they turned against him. He seemed disinterested or rude in press conferences. Um, he tried to be like Bill Parcells um, without his wit or his winning record. So he didn't know how to handle being a head coach. He also allowed the veteran players to bend the rules, which meant that within the group, there were cultural problems. He cut uh, a quarterback who was a local boy made good um, because he felt he was physically diminished and therefore the crowd turned against him as well. So here he is at his low point. So remember, he'd spent about 16 years trying to get this head coach position. Next time, if he got a next time, would have to be different. 
He was in danger of being uh, labelled a dour perennial assistant, a kind of football nerd, if you like, a prodigy who didn't have any charisma, always the bridesmaid, never the brush, blushing bride sort of thing. So he goes back to assist Parcells um, at New England. So this is a great story, right? Um, Belichick calls a play during the game and Parcells seems to oppose it. But they went ahead and it worked. Even though it worked, um, Belichick Parcells was absolutely furious. Uh, and over the open microphone for everybody in the coaching uh, team to hear, he cruelly says, yeah, you're a genius. Everyone knows it, a goddamn genius. But that's why you failed as a head coach. That's why you'll never be a head coach. Some genius. So, so here's here he is being uh, chewed out as well by Parcells. So, what does he learn from this, and how does it affect the future? Well, he he learned that planning issues around the game is as important as planning for the game. His dad gets him to break down film footage at nine years old, but his dad doesn't give him the nous about how he's going to be dealing with other people. He works out he needs to be his own man. So uh, he was offered to be head coach of the New York Jets, but Parcells was going to be the general manager. And after his experience with Parcells, he, he turns it down. He becomes head coach instead at the New England Patriots, but he's head coach and general manager himself. So he's also got an attuned relationship with the owner. So so he's in a better position in that way. Um, he stays unsentimental and hard in decision-making, he has no entitlement culture. He never bends the rules anymore for the, the senior players. Um, he recruits talented people who have a love of, of football. He pays them next to nothing, so they earn, earn their way like he did. And then when they prove their worth, he gives them money. Um, so he's got a vision for long-term success. He, he kind of um, he's not great with the media, but now he understands the media. So the first thing he does on the day is gets on the treadmill reads all the media reports that his press officer gives him, so he gets a feel for where they are. So he knows he's got to play the game to some extent. Um, I'll leave it at that, I think. But the point is that he's... he's Would Belichick have created the dynasty in American football with the New England Patriots that he did in a sport that's deliberately set up so that you can't create dynasties without that formative, hard experience? And I would argue no. And I, I hear that his relationship with the players was good, but he always stood back. He didn't meet them one-on-one. -on -one. He tried to keep some some distance or I've heard it called a buffer zone. Is that true, David? Did you come across that in your research? Yeah, you've got to remember he wasn't a pro player. Uh, you've got to remember that he, he was very young uh, when he was dealing with some of these players. So he couldn't get very close to them. Um, he had to fight his way up to earn his respect and he's, he's earned his respect as a coach. Um, I don't think he's a particularly warm person, uh, but I think he knows that, and he's not the charismatic person that people would like him to be in front of the in front of the cameras. But again, you come to terms with that, don't you? I, it's no good trying to be someone else, but you could be the best version of yourself that you can be with people. Um, he's certainly better with the media than he was at Cleveland, but he's not a great he's not a great charismatic media person. I don't think he gets terribly close with players. But that's because he's quite quite ruthless in his decision making. You know, he will cut you if you're not playing well. Um, you know, he expects people to do their job, as his famous phrase is done. So his relationship with them is not a cosy coach. You know, when I when I profiled him, I, I actually compared him and Pete Carroll, and they're mm. they're both at the same sort of level. Belichick's a bit more successful, but Carroll's had his success as well. Um, 
Pete Carroll can be summed up by the phrase, something great is just about to happen. And Bill Belichick can be summed up with the phrase, if you don't do this, something terrible is going to happen. But they both work. <laughs> Love it. So, David, what is it you think we can take away from all of this? Uh, I, I think there's a few things. I mean, I think if, you, if you're interested in a coach, try and immerse yourself in looking at them uh, and see if you can work out what makes them tick. Um, you know, people say to me, why haven't you looked at um, Alex Ferguson? I haven't got a particular connection that interests me about Alex Ferguson, um, which is nothing against him. It's just that it hasn't. I need to, if I'm going to read everything about someone for several months, I need something that sparks me off, something that's interesting. Um, and I haven't just got that with that. So if you're, if you're interested in a coach, look deeply, see if you can learn something more deeply. These turning points and these key influences show us that we can get a deeper understanding by thinking critically about coaching careers. When you look at somebody else's coaching career, their practical wisdom informs your practical wisdom. I can read about a coach and think, oh, I like that. I'm going to try that because I'd never do that. That's not me. So it can paradoxically, by, by getting a better understanding of legendary coaches, we can perhaps understand ourselves more. And when you, as I think it was, now who? I'll think of this theorist in a minute. Carl Rogers. I think Carl Rogers said, uh, when you know yourself, you can change yourself kind of thing. Um, so if we can know ourselves more by looking at these coaches, then we can adapt our practice suitably as well and think about how we might change things. And as I said to you earlier, I think the greatest quality of coaches is, is adaptation at any level. Um, so I think we can gain deeper insight um, and, and I think one of the the byproducts of that is a heightened awareness. Uh, and if we, we've got a heightened awareness, we're almost talking about the mindfulness of learning from legendary coaches, right? Um, because we're we're sensitized to learning from these stories and from other things. And, and maybe we're motivated by it. I mean, a quick story. Um, typically, I'll do the two-hour talk. So I've got a series of things I've gone through, and I've got a series of key messages I'm trying to get across. But often people will come up to me afterwards and go, I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, why did you enjoy it? And, they and I took this away, they said. And, and they tell me, and I'm, I'm going, okay, that's really interesting. And I'm thinking, wow, I didn't intend that. But isn't that fascinating? So when you're telling a story, you've got to leave some gaps for people to bring themselves to it. Almost like the gaps between the notes in music. Um, you know, there's, there's got to be something where someone can make their own connections. And I love that. I think that is a wonderful thing when people will tell me what they got from it and I didn't intend it at all um, and, and sometimes they're really rich and interesting and, and take us on another tangent and the gaps between the notes and the music is a wonderful place for us to finish David it's been fascinating talking to you I can't wait for our next conversation and hearing more about what you've learned from some of these very very special individuals so thank you very much for your time tonight David and I I very much look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on turning points in the careers and lives of great coaches with Dr. David Turner and found one or two things that you can bring back to your own dinner table, locker room or boardroom table for discussion. I thought David's energy and storytelling were just fantastic and I particularly like the stories about Pat Summit and Phil Jackson. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. 
We love getting the notes and comments from people all around the world who listen. It keeps us going. And all the details on how you can contact us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.